Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Tonight, I will be reading Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 1 
April 13th, 1848. There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. We had been wandering, indeed, in the leafless shrubbery an hour in the morning. But since dinner, Mrs. Reed, when there was no company, dined early. The cold winter wind had brought with it clouds so sombre and a rain so penetrating that further outdoor exercise was now out of the question. I was glad of it. I never liked long walks, especially on chilly afternoons. Dreadful to me was the coming home in the raw twilight with nipped fingers and toes and a heart saddened by the chidings of Bessie the nurse and humbled by the consciousness of my physical inferiority to Eliza, John, and Georgiana Reed. The said Eliza, John, and Georgiana were now clustered round their mamma in the drawing room. She lay reclined on a sofa by the fireside, and with her darlings about her, for the time neither quarrelling nor crying, looked perfectly happy. Me, she had dispensed from joining the group, saying she regretted to be under the necessity of keeping me at a distance, but that, until she heard from Bessie, and could discover by her own observation that I was endeavouring, in good earnest, to acquire a more sociable and childlike disposition, a more attractive and sprightly manner, something lighter, franker, more natural, as it were, she really must exclude me from privileges intended only for contented, happy little children. What does Bessie say I have done? I asked. Jane, I don't like cavillers or questioners. Besides, there is something truly forbidding in a child taking up her elders in that manner. Be seated somewhere, and until you can speak pleasantly, remain silent. A breakfast room adjoined the drawing room. I slipped in there. It contained a bookcase. I soon possessed myself of a volume, taking care that it should be one stored with pictures. I mounted into the window seat, gathering up my feet. I sat cross-legged, and, having drawn the red moreen curtain nearly close, I was shrined in double retirement. Folds of scarlet drapery shut in my view to the right hand. To the left were the clear panes of glass protecting, but not separating me, from the dreary November day. At intervals, while turning over the leaves of my book, I studied the aspect of that winter afternoon. Afar, it offered a pale blank of mist and cloud, near a scene of wet lawn and storm-beach shrub, with ceaseless rain sweeping away wildly before a long and lamentable blast. I returned to my book, Buick's History of British Birds, the letterpress thereof I cared little for, generally speaking, and yet there were certain introductory pages that, 
child as I was, I could not pass quite as a blank. There are those which treat of the haunts of sea-fowl, of the solitary rocks and promontories, by them only inhabited, of the coast of Norway, studded with isles from its southern extremity, the Lindness, or Nays, to the North Cape, where the northern ocean, in vast whirls, boils round the naked melancholy isles, a furthest tool and the Atlantic surge pours in among the stormy Hebrides. Nor could I pass unnoticed the suggestion of the bleak shores of Lapland, Siberia, Spitsbergen, Nova Zembla, Iceland, Greenland, with the vast sweep of the Arctic zone and those forlorn regions of dreary space, that reservoir of frost and snow, where firm fields of ice, the accumulation of centuries of winters, glazed in alpine heights above heights, surround the pole and concentre the multiplied rigours of extreme cold. Of these death-white realms, I formed an idea of my own, shadowy, like all the half-comprehended notions that float dim through children's brains, but strangely impressive. The words in these introductory pages connected themselves with the succeeding vignettes and gave significance to the rock standing up alone in a sea of billow and spray, to the broken boat stranded on a desolate coast, to the cold and ghastly moon glancing through bars of cloud at a wreck just sinking. I cannot tell what sentiment haunted the quite solitary churchyard with its inscribed headstone, its gate, its two trees, its low horizon girdled by a broken wall, and its newly risen crescent attesting the hour of eventide. The two ships becalmed on a torpid sea, I believed to be marine phantoms. The fiend pinning down the thief's pack behind him, I passed over quickly. It was an object of terror. So was the black-horned thing seated aloof on a rock, surveying a distant crowd surrounding a gallows. Each picture told a story, mysterious often to my undeveloped understanding and imperfect feelings yet ever profoundly interesting, as interesting as the tales Bessie sometimes narrated on winter evenings, when she chanced to be in good humour, and when, having brought her ironing table to the nursery hearth, she allowed us to sit about it, and while she got up Mrs. Reed's lace frills and crimped her nightcap borders, fed our eager attention with passages of love an adventure taken from old fairy tales and other ballads, or, as at a later period I discovered, from the pages of Pamela and Henry, Earl of Moreland. With Buick on my knee, I was then happy, happy at least in my way. I feared nothing but interruption, and that came too soon. The breakfast room door opened. Madame Mope, cried the voice of John Reed. Then he paused. He found the room apparently empty. 
Where the dickens is she? He continued. Lizzie, Georgie, calling to his sisters. Joan is not here. Tell Mama she is run out into the rain, bad animal. It is well I drew the curtain, I thought, and I wished fervently he might not discover my hiding place. Nor would John Reed have found it himself. He was not quick, either of vision or conception. But Eliza just put her head in at the door and said at once, She's in the window seat, to be sure, Jack. And I came out immediately, for I trembled at the idea of being dragged forth by the said Jack. What do you want? I asked with awkward diffidence. Say, what do you want, Master Reed? was the answer. I want you to come here. And seating himself in an armchair, he intimated by a gesture that I was to approach and stand before him. John Reed was a schoolboy of 14 years old, four years older than I, for I was but 10. Large and stout for his age, with a dingy and unwholesome skin. Thick lineaments in a spacious visage, heavy limbs and large extremities. He gorged himself habitually at table, which made him bilious, and gave him a dim and blurred eye and flabby cheeks. He ought now to have been at school, but his mamma had taken him home for a month or two on account of his delicate health. Mr. Miles, the master, affirmed that he would do very well if he had fewer cakes and sweetmeats sent him from home. But the mother's heart turned from an opinion so harsh and inclined rather to the more refined idea that John's sallowness was owing to over-application and perhaps to pining after home. John had not much affection for his mother and sisters and an antipathy to me. He bullied and punished me not two or three times in the week, nor once or twice in the day, but continually. Every nerve I had feared him, and every morsel of flesh in my bones shrank when he came near. There were moments when I was bewildered by the terror he inspired, because I had no appeal whatever against either his menaces or his inflictions. The servants did not like to offend their young master by taking my part against him, and Mrs. Reed was blind and deaf on the subject. She never saw him strike or heard him abuse me, though he did both now and then in her very presence, more frequently, however, behind her back. Habitually obedient to John, I came up to his chair. He spent some three minutes in thrusting out his tongue at me as far as he could, without damaging the roots. I knew he would soon strike, and while dreading the blow, I mused on the disgusting and ugly appearance of him, who would presently deal it. I wonder if he read that notion in my face, for, all at once, without speaking, he struck suddenly and strongly. I tottered, and on gaining my equilibrium, retired back a step or two from his chair. This is for your impudence in answering Mama a while since, said he, and for your sneaking way of getting behind curtains, and for the look you had in your eyes two minutes ago, you rat. 
accustomed to Joan Reed's abuse. I never had an idea of replying to it. My care was how to endure the blow, which would certainly follow the insult. What were you doing behind the curtain, he asked. I was reading. Show the book. I returned to the window and fetched it thence. You have no business to take our books. You are a dependent, Mama says. You have no money. Your father left you none. You ought to beg, and not to live here with gentlemen's children like us, and eat the same meals we do, and wear clothes at Mama's expense. Now, I'll teach you to rummage my bookshelves, for they are mine. All the house belongs to me, or will do in a few years. Go and stand by the door, out of the way of the mirror and the windows. I did so, not at first aware what was his intention, but when I saw him lift and poise the book and stand and act to hurl it, I instinctively started aside with a cry of alarm. Not soon enough, however, the volume was flung. It hit me, and I fell, striking my head against the door and cutting it. The cut bled. The pain was sharp. My terror had passed its climax. Other feelings succeeded. Wicked and cruel boy, I said. You are like a murderer. You are like the Roman emperors. I had read Goldsmith's History of Rome and had formed my opinion of Nero, Caligula, etc. Also, I had drawn parallels in silence, which I never thought thus to have declared aloud. What, what, he cried. Did she say that to me? Did you hear her, Eliza and Georgiana? Won't I tell Mama? But first, he ran headlong at me. I felt him grasp my hair and my shoulder. He had closed with a desperate thing. I really saw in him a tyrant, a murderer. I felt a drop or two of blood from my head trickle down my neck and was sensible of somewhat pungent suffering. These sensations for the time predominated over fear, and I received him in frantic sort. I don't very well know what I did with my hands, but he called me rat, rat, and bellowed out loud. Aid was near him. Eliza and Georgiana had run for Mrs. Reed, who was gone upstairs. She now came upon the scene followed by Bessie and her maid Abbott. We were parted. I heard the words, Dear, dear, what a fury to fly at Master John. Did ever anybody see such a picture of passion? Then, Mrs. Reed subjoined, Take her away to the red room and lock her in there. Four hands were immediately laid upon me, and I was borne upstairs. Chapter 2 I resisted all the way, a new thing for me, and a circumstance which greatly strengthened the bad opinion Bessie and Miss Abbott were disposed to entertain of me. The fact is, I was a trifle beside myself, or rather, out of myself, as the French would say. I was conscious that a moment's mutiny had already rendered me liable to strange penalties, and, like any other rebel, I felt resolved in my desperation to go all lengths. Hold her arms, Miss Abbott. She's like a mad cat. For shame, for shame, cried the lady's maid. 
shocking conduct, Miss Eyre, to strike a young gentleman, your young master. Master? How is he my master? Am I a servant? No, you are less than a servant, for you do nothing for your keep. There, sit down and think over your wickedness. They had got me by this time into the apartment indicated by Mrs. Reed and had thrust me upon a stool. My impulse was to rise from it like a spring. Their two pair of hands arrested me instantly. If you don't sit still, you must be tied down, said Bessie. Miss Abbott, lend me your garters. She would break mine directly. Miss Abbott, turn to divest a stout leg of the necessary ligature. This preparation for bonds took a little of the excitement out of me. Don't take them off, I cried. I will not stir. In guarantee whereof, I attached myself to my seat by my hands. Mind you don't, said Bessie. And when she had ascertained that I was really subsiding, she loosened her hold on me. Then she and Miss Abbott stood with folded arms, looking darkly and doubtfully on my face, as incredulous of my sanity. She never did so before, at last, said Bessie, turning to the Abigail. But it was always in her, was the reply. I've told Mrs. Often my opinion about the child, and Mrs. agreed with me. She's an underhand little thing. I never saw a girl of her age with so much cover. Bessie answered not, but ere long, addressing me, she said, You ought to be aware, miss, that you are under obligations to Mrs. Reed. She keeps you. If she were to turn you off, you would have to go to the poorhouse. I had nothing to say to these words. They were not new to me. My very first recollections of existence included hints of the same kind. This reproach of my dependence had become a vague sing-song in my ear. Very painful and crushing, but only half intelligible. Miss Abbott joined in. And you ought not to think yourself on an equality with the Mrs. Reed and Master Reed, because Mrs. Kindly allows you to be brought up with them. They will have a great deal of money, and you will have none. It is your place to be humble and to try and make yourself agreeable to them. What we tell you is for your good added Bessie, in no harsh voice. You should try to be useful and pleasant, then perhaps you would have a home here. But if you become passionate and rude, Mrs. will send you away, I am sure. Besides, said Miss Abbott, God will punish her. He might strike her dead in the midst of her tantrums, and then where would she go? Come, Bessie, we will leave her. I wouldn't have her heart for anything. Say your prayers, Miss Eyre, when you are by yourself, for if you don't repent, something bad might be permitted to come down the chimney and fetch you away. They went, shutting the door and locking it behind them. The red room was a square chamber, very seldom slept in, I might say never, indeed, unless when a chance influx of visitors at Gateshead's Hall rendered it necessary to turn to account all the accommodation it contained. Yet it was one of the largest and stateliest chambers in the mansion. A bed supported on massive pillars of mahogany 
hung with curtains of deep red damask, stood out like a tabernacle in the center. The two large windows, with their blinds always drawn down, were half shrouded in festoons and folds of similar drapery. The carpet was red. The table at the foot of the bed was covered with a crimson cloth. The walls were a soft fawn color with a blush of pink in it. The wardrobe, the toilet table, the chairs were of darkly polished old mahogany. Out of these deep surrounding shades rose high and glared white, piled up mattresses and pillows of the bed, spread with a snowy Marseille counterpane. Scarcely less prominent was an ample cushioned easy chair near the head of the bed, also white, with a footstool before it, and looking, as I thought, like a pale throne. This room was chill because it seldom had a fire. It was silent because remote from the nursery and kitchen, solemn because it was known to be so seldom entered. The housemaid alone came here on Saturdays to wipe from the mirrors and the furniture a week's quiet dust. And Mrs. Reed herself, at far intervals, visited it to review the contents of a certain secret drawer in the wardrobe, where were stored divers' parchments, her jewel casket, and a miniature of her deceased husband. And in those last words lies the secret of the Red Room, the spell which kept it so lonely in spite of its grandeur. Mr. Reed had been dead nine years. It was in this chamber he breathed his last. Here he lay in state. Hence, his coffin was borne by the undertaker's men, and, since that day, a sense of jury consecration had guarded it from frequent intrusion. My seat, to which Bessie and the bitter Miss Abbott had left me riveted, was a low ottoman near the marble chimney piece. The bed rose before me. To my right hand, there was the high, dark wardrobe with subdued, broken reflections varying the gloss of its panels. To my left were the muffled windows, a great looking-glass between them, repeated the vacant majesty of the bed and the room. I was not quite sure whether they had locked the door, and when I dared move, I got up and went to see. Alas, yes, no jail was ever more secure. Returning, I had to cross before the looking-glass. My fascinated glance involuntarily explored the depth it revealed. All looked colder and darker in that visionary hollow than in reality, and the strange little figure there gazing at me, with a white face and arms specking the gloom, and glittering eyes of fear, moving where all else was still, had the effect of a real spirit. I thought it like one of the tiny phantoms, half fairy, half imp, Bessie's evening stories represented as coming out of lone, ferny dells and moors and appearing before the eyes of belated travellers. I returned to my stool. Superstition was with me at the moment, but it was not yet her hour for complete victory. My blood was still warm. The mood of the revolted was still bracing me with its bitter vigour. I had to stem a rapid rush of retrospective thought before I quailed to the dismal present. All John Reed's violent tyrannies, all his sister's proud indifference, 
all his mother's aversion, all the servant's partiality, turned up in my disturbed mind like a dark deposit in a turbid well. Why was I always suffering, always browbeaten, always accused, forever condemned? Why could I never please? Why was it useless to try to win anyone's favor? Eliza, who was headstrong and selfish, was respected. Georgiana, who had a spoiled temper and a very acrid spite, a captious and insolent carriage, was universally indulged. Her beauty, her pink cheeks and golden curls, seemed to give delight to all who looked at her and to purchase indemnity for every fault. John, no one thwarted, much less punished, though he twisted the necks of the pigeons, killed the little peachicks, set the dogs at the sheep, stripped the hothouse vines of their fruit, and broke the buds off the choicest plants in the conservatory. He called his mother old girl too, sometimes reviled her for her dark skin similar to his own, bluntly disregarded her wishes, not unfrequently tore and spoiled her silk attire, and he was still her own darling. I dared commit no fault. I strove to fulfill every duty, and I was termed naughty and tiresome, sullen and sneaky, from morning to noon and from noon to night. My head still ached and bled with the blow and fall I had received. No one had reproved John for wantingly striking me, and because I had turned against him to avert further irrational violence, I was loaded with a general opprobrium. Unjust, unjust, said my reason, forced by the agonizing stimulus into precocious, though transitory power. And resolve, equally wrought up, instigated some strange expedient to achieve escape from insupportable oppression, as running away or, if that could not be effected, never eating or drinking more and letting myself die. What a consternation of soul was mine that dreary afternoon. How all my brain was in tumult and all my heart in insurrection. Yet, in what darkness, what dense ignorance was the mental battle fought? I could not answer the ceaseless inward question why I thus suffered, now, at the distance of, I will not say how many years, I see it clearly. I was a discord in Gateshead Hall. I was like nobody there. I had nothing in harmony with Mrs. Reed or her children. If they did not love me, in fact, as little did I love them. They were not bound to regard with affection a thing that could not sympathize with one amongst them. A heterogeneous thing, opposed to them in temperament, in capacity, in propensities, a useless thing, incapable of serving their interest or adding to their pleasure, a noxious thing, cherishing the germs of indignation at their treatment, of contempt of their judgment. I know that had I been a brilliant, careless, exacting, handsome, romping child, though equally dependent and friendless, Mrs. Reed would have endured my presence more complacently. Her children would have entertained for me more of the cordiality of fellow feeling. The servants would have been less prone to make me the scapegoat of the nursery. Daylight began to forsake the red room. It was past four o'clock, and the beclouded afternoon was tending to drear twilight. 
I heard the rain still beating continuously on the staircase window and the wind howling in the groove behind the hall. I grew by degrees cold as a stone and then my courage sank. My habitual mood of humiliation, self-doubt, forlorn depression fell damp on the embers of my decaying ire. All said I was wicked, and perhaps I might be so. What thought had I been just conceiving of starving myself to death? That certainly was a crime. Or was I fit to die? Or was the vault under the chancel of Gateshead Church an inviting born? In such vault, I had been told, did Mr. Reed lie buried, and led by this thought to recall his idea. I dwelt on it with gathering dread. I could not remember him, but I knew that he was my own uncle, my mother's brother, that he had taken me when a parentless infant to his house, and that in his last moments he had required a promise of Mrs. Reed that she would rear and maintain me as one of her own children. Mrs. Reed probably considered she had kept this promise, and so she had, I dare say, as well as her nature would permit her. But how could she really like an interloper? not of her race, and unconnected with her after her husband's death by any tie. It must have been most irksome to find herself bound by a hard-wrung pledge to stand in the stead of a parent to a strange child she could not love, and to see an uncongenial alien permanently intruded on her own family group. A singular notion dawned upon me. I doubted not, never doubted, that if Mr. Reed had been alive, he would have treated me kindly. And now, as I sat looking at the white bed and overshadowed walls, occasionally also turning a fascinated eye towards the dimly gleaning mirror, I began to recall what I had heard of dead men troubled in their graves by the violation of their last wishes, revisiting the earth to punish the perjured and avenge the oppressed. And I thought Mr. Reed's spirit harassed by the wrongs of his sister's child, might quit its abode, whether in the church vault or in the unknown world of the departed, and rise before me in this chamber. I wiped my tears and hushed my sobs, fearful lest any sign of violent grief might awaken a preternatural voice to comfort me, or elicit from the gloom some haloed face bending over me with strange pity. This idea, consolatory in theory, I felt would be terrible if realized. With all my might, I endeavored to stifle it. I endeavored to be firm. Shaking my hair from my eyes, I lifted my head and tried to look boldly around the dark room. At this moment, a light gleamed on the wall. Was it, I asked myself, a ray from the moon penetrating some aperture in the blind? No, moonlight was still, and this stirred. While I gazed, it glided up to the ceiling and quivered over my head. I can now conjecture readily that this streak of light was, in all likelihood, a gleam from a lantern carried by someone across the lawn. But then, prepared as my mind was for horror, shaken as my nerves were by agitation, I thought the swift, darting beam was a herald of some coming vision from another world. My heart beat thick, my head grew hot. A sound filled my ears, 
which I deemed the rushing of wings. Something seemed near me. I was oppressed, suffocated. Endurance broke down. I rushed to the door and shook the lock in desperate effort. Steps came running along the outer passage. The key turned. Bessie and Abbott entered. Miss Eyre, are you ill? said Bessie. What a dreadful noise. It went quite through me, exclaimed Abbott. Take me out. Let me go into the nursery, was my cry. What for? Are you hurt? Have you seen something? Again demanded Bessie. Oh, I saw a light, and I thought a ghost would come. I had now got hold of Bessie's hand, and she did not snatch it from me. She screamed out on purpose, declared Abbott in some disgust. And what a scream. If she had been in great pain, one could have excused it. But she only wanted to bring us all here. I know her naughty tricks. What is all this? demanded another voice. And Mrs. Reed came along the corridor, her cap flying wide, her gown rustling stormily. Abbott and Bessie, I believe I gave orders that Jane Eyre should be left in the red room till I came to her myself. Miss Jane screamed so loud, ma'am, pleaded Bessie. Let her go, was the only answer. Loose Bessie's hand, child. You cannot succeed in getting out by these means, be assured. I abhor artifice, particularly in children. It is my duty to show you that tricks will not answer. You will now stay here an hour longer. And it is only on condition of perfect submission and stillness that I shall liberate you then. Oh, aunt, have pity. Forgive me. I cannot endure it. Let me be punished in some other way. I shall be killed if... Silence. This violence is also most repulsive. And so, no doubt, she felt it. I was a precocious actress in her eyes. She sincerely looked on me as a compound of virulent passions, mean spirit, and dangerous duplicity. Bessie and Abbott, having retreated, Miss Reed, impatient of my now frantic anguish and wild sobs, abruptly thrust me back and locked me in without further parley. I heard her sweeping away, and soon after she was gone, I suppose I had a species of fit, and consciousness closed the scene.